I'm Rusty Williams, and this is Forming the Future, a series of conversations exploring the intersections of education, innovation, and physical space. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Aaron Niederhelman. Aaron is a lifelong advocate of healthier, cleaner food and was selected in 2015 as an Eisenhower Fellow. During his fellowship, he spent several months traveling throughout Europe and the Middle East to gain insight from the front lines of an ever-shrinking world where natural resources and water management have long been tightly linked to that region's health, economy, and national security. With a focus on collaborating with others to promote greater good, Aaron also co-founded the Agrarian Fund. He hosts Sourcing Matters, a podcast focused on regenerative agriculture and future food systems. And he participates in numerous nonprofit boards ranging from food security to climate change to social responsibility. All right, Aaron, th- thank you very much for uh, joining me today. It's great to uh, get together with you. Uh, I was especially eager to talk with you uh, about what I'd say uh, or I'd describe as agriculture moving inside. And I think it's sort of a very interesting trend of, uh, of urban farms and rooftop farms, container farms, vertical farming, whatever the terms are that, that people use. Um, and you know, part of your background, you've really focused on this, uh, as, especially, especially as an, uh, an Eisenhower Fellow, uh, which I, I guess you spent a good part of 2015 in that program. That might be a good place to start, is, is uh, giving a little bit background of, of what you did in that program and, and, and uh, how you've come to focus on food, source, uh, food as an so- innovation uh, a platform. Sure. Well, Rusty, first of all, thanks for having me on uh, on the show. I appreciate uh, you opening up the forum, and uh, I'd be happy to to chat about that. So, yeah, um, you know, um, contained area growing, uh, glasshouse, greenhouse, uh, modified uh, shipping containers, all of these attributes and and new technologies are very exciting. Uh, What we've seen in the last five years is really um, a significant uptick in interest uh, in innovation uh, being poured throughout, throughout, ported throughout the entire industry. Um, yeah, so in, in 2015, I did do a program with the Eisenhower Fellowship Program, which is a, it's a multinational program that focuses on change agents around the world and trying to uh, bring, bring in individuals that have multidimensional and diverse backgrounds and give them a, a mid-career fellowship program to do some research and analysis into a deeper dive into an area of interest. Uh, so my area was, was food systems, uh, natural resource uh, management, including water and nutrient cycling programs. Uh, and so as such, one of the areas I got to, to do some research in uh, was in the Netherlands. And mm-hmm. uh, the Netherlands and, and much of uh, Europe has uh, adopted the approach of glasshouse and greenhouse growing uh, in fact, to a point where they are one of the global thought leaders, a country the size of Vermont uh, with about 17 million people in it that um, actually has a footprint on global agriculture is, is impressive in itself. Yeah. Uh, but their focus on innovation and moving in the direction that this approach to food systems and agriculture uh, as intellectual property really makes them, makes them unique. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when I, when I was doing my research program in the Netherlands, um, most of my analysis was on food animal production, specifically looking at uh, the overuse of antibiotics in, in food animals and a way of remediating the issues and solving the problems associated to that uh, through better production models. But while I was there, I had the chance to uh, visit and, and do some analysis and research on the Westlands. And the Westlands is one section of the Netherlands 
that is actually uh, it's it's just west of of Rotterdam uh, by one of the central ports in in Europe. It's actually mm-hmm. the second busiest port in the world, uh, and they've made this into a hub of um, uh, a hub of of uh, value add processing within food systems. They basically capture everything coming out of the Rhine, and then they use the port of Rotterdam as a distribution center. Uh, to vertically integrate that, they've actually added this whole overlay of uh, of, of glasshouse production to the point where in that one small section, that one region of the Netherlands, they actually have 10 times the total footprint uh, in that one portion of, of the Netherlands as the entire U.S. in uh, in growing under glass. Uh, so to give you an idea of the epicenter, it's a bit like the Silicon Valley of uh, uh, of greenhouse and glasshouse production uh, right there in, in Rotterdam. Uh, and yeah, it was quite intriguing to see that this can be done and the volume of production that they can actually create uh, is is quite impressive to the point now where uh, that type of uh, relatively urban agriculture models uh, are being induced throughout throughout the world, even here in the states where we're looking at things differently. Uh, and uh, it's been uh, been intriguing to see some of the mechanisms that we've used here to to adopting these procedures and some of this new intellectual property towards uh, towards a food system food system of the future. Can you guys quickly? You're using glasshouse and greenhouse, and I think that those those two terms weren't among the terms that I threw out as we started. Is there is there a yeah. distinction between the two of those? You know, so um, greenhouse, from my from my understanding, what I saw, and again, this is not my expertise. This is just from taking in and speak, speaking to people that do have expertise in the space. Um, I would define it that glasshouse is um, kind of a modified term of really including many of these large facilities that include some of the more sophisticated growing approach. So much of the models that we've seen in Europe and, and adopted more in a, in a global stature uh, have stayed as a horizontal approach. Mm-hmm. And those horizontal approach are very automated. Uh, they actually reduce the use of and requirement for human capital, uh, but they can be very expansive. I mean, they can be hectares. Some of the glasshouse production we saw while in the Westlands was 10, 15, 20 hectares uh, which is, you know, up to 40, 50 acres of, of total wow. glasshouse production. Wow. Uh, greenhouse production seems to be a term that we use here in the States uh, as a way of defining probably smaller scale production models, less automated, maybe what we think of of uh, knowing someone that had a small greenhouse or something related to horticulture uh, rather than rather than a modified or advanced uh, food system approach. So, what I saw is glasshouse seems to be a term that is used more often with uh, dealing with these larger infrastructure production models rather than greenhouse, which seems for us in the U.S. seems to be an incubator to, to next right, steps. Right. Um, but I'll, I'll just throw this in there and say, Rusty, you know, all of it is, is whether it's that or whether it's vertical farming or whether it's these modified shipping containers, the idea is getting to the point of controlled environment growing. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions I often get you know, about this approach to growing things is should we make uh, should we make hydroponics, should we make indoor growing organic? Should we look at this and, and try to get a broader adoption? And, you know, I, I think we got to look at this in a different way and say that the approach that we use in this controlled environment growing can reduce the use of persistent pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides by over 80%, sometimes 95% if the production models are correct. Wow. And if we look at that and say, we don't necessarily have to make hydroponics and organic certification, but it does set up an opportunity to make these hydroponics 
a cleaner way than or a replacement for much of the conventional models that we use, which are very linear in perspective, which are shipped from all over the world, uh, which are really some of the driving factors and issues that people would have within food systems um, that that this hydroponic or indoor growing approach can actually create a consistent supply of high quality produce and veg uh, on a consistent basis anywhere in the world. Uh, at a relatively low cost. And, and that's a very exciting evolution if we start looking at it that way instead of looking at it, it has to be a replacement for organics. Mm-hmm. You, you use in your research and the things you've published the term regenerative agriculture. Does, does this trend overall fit, fit under that umbrella, do you think, or is it something, somewhat yeah, different? It, sure. So it depends on the substrate of what you're using for growing this. Um, many people, most of the growing models that are in control controlled environment growing, uh, and especially in the smaller container growing like we've seen uh, in the region with uh, farm-in-a-box or uh, freight farms, uh, are all hydroponics. And hydroponics is just using water and cocoa mesh as a substrate. You actually then induce or add the nutrient as a, as a soluble water stream. Part of the actual uh, way that the plant gets its, its uh, nutrients is through through. Uh, nutrients you put into the water supply directly. So um, that is a approach that is more broadly adopted. There are production models, and we saw I saw some of them while I was uh, in another portion of Europe that were using soil-based growing as an approach to do it inside. Mm-hmm. The idea of regenerative uh, agriculture is just taking advantage of the fact that Mother Nature uh, and, and ecology and biology are based on a regenerative approach, which just means that there's a, a concept of nutrient cycling. So uh, when the plant puts out sugars, it feeds the bugs, the, bud, the bugs eat that, they, the byproduct then feeds the plant. Mm-hmm. So it's a symbiotic and closed-loop system that's yeah. been evolved over a couple billion years of evolution. We've got a couple major parts in there that work within it, and what we're doing now on the growing side of things is starting to figure out those key attributes to make it uh, more uniform, more in harmony, so that we can start working with these regenerative approach or resilient type approach of agriculture instead of trying to put expensive and costly inputs in all the time to try to grow with uh, with our versions of fertilizers, pesticides, and herbicides. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it does have capacity. Indoor growing does have capacity to be a regenerative-based approach to food systems. And I think that's a quite an exciting evolution. There's groups uh, throughout the world that are focused on soil-based indoor growing and uh, and keeping the moniker of organics and associated to that, which um, you know, which is an exciting evolution because there's multiple tracks then that we can take this approach to uh, to controlled environment growing. The, the advantage we get out of that is you rule out any potential flood, any potential uh, weather crisis. Uh, the, the issue or the pen, potential issue of pests or bugs or critters, uh, the, you control the environment to reduce the issue with any kind of, uh, you know, fungus, a fun, fungus that's going to attack your plants. Uh, and those are all key attributes and many of the reasons why we start to use uh, all of the real negative aspects that we think of of conventional agriculture, like persistent pesticides or uh, glyphosate or any of these sterilization agents. Uh, come as a proactive and preemptive approach to things that we think are going to come and affect us. Well, in a controlled environment, we surely reduce that risk factor. And so it makes it a much cleaner way of growing things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what some of the enthusiasm is, is that it does create a whole new stream 
of clean quality food that can come from right next door. And that is uh, for, for, we both live in the Northeast. So to have that consistent supply uh, of putting, you know, a greenhouse or a glass house on every college campus to do the highest quality produce year round, well, that's an exciting evolution that is within the next decade uh, that will be a game changer in the way that we start to look at regionalizing food systems. Well, so I, I think, you know, I did a little bit of work early on with freight farms and was just very excited about that uh, concept of literally a farm in a, in a shipping container. And, and, and what you just described sounds all positive. Are there, are there some negatives with this that, uh, that you know, people should keep in mind or, or, you know, kind of balance the scale a little bit? Or is it really mostly a positive story? Well, I mean, it's an innovation, right? So there's always negative stories, and it depends on uh, the eye of the beholder of what your positive or negative is. So, um, you know, most of the knock on much of this urban ag model is that it will never feed the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we got to look at it on a a sequential steps, right? So, yes, in the current structure, it won't feed the world. Or in the framework and the delivery mechanisms we have, yeah, this is just early days. This is, you know, this is early to market concepts. Um, but it's it, what we get excited by is the evolution of the technology that can come out of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's it, running these approach um, in, in, as I mentioned earlier in the discussion, uh, much of the larger instances we've seen have not adopted. Uh, we have not gone to an approach where we've done vertical farming. A lot of the enthusiasm in the space, especially within the tech community, is looking at this idea of vertical farming, which is effectively going into a city, taking a six or 10 story building, uh, you know, gutting it and then rehabbing it with a grow facility. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is when you're growing low cost products like veg in many cases, salad greens or any of these products, uh, it's very expensive to actually uh, reap the benefits. So it's cost prohibitive to actually get into this approach of agriculture because your energy costs are astronomical in feeding uh, and having the, the amount of grow days that these plants need. Uh, so you, if you tie it in with natural light, hence the reason of having these horizontal farms, uh, yeah, there's great capacity to start uh, clawing back some of those resources and making it more of a pragmatic approach for investing. Right. So just like anything, any new technologies, um, we're trying to find entry points into the market where they become... Uh, a pragmatic investment vehicle. And that's what's great about what Brad has done with Freight Farms is they have found a way through utilizing um, a small confined environment to solving the needs of a specific user, whether it's a restaurateur uh, or a distributor that wants to add you know, a basil growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, they can provide that and they can do the economics for you. They also help you procure a USDA loan to get basically low-cost capital to invest in this type of program. So um, I think it's exciting when we start to mirror in the fact that this is not a linear perspective of growing, but if you can solve business needs, uh, that's when we can start to reduce the friction points and get more people engaged in this. So, yeah, I mean, of course, Rusty, there's probably more negatives to it than positive, especially if you're dealing with very large-scale agriculture or if you're looking at supplying products to wholesale or food service distribution, which accounts for upwards of 90% of throughput of food, they're not there yet. But other parts of the world have shown models that can be successful at. Right. Uh, and then you go to the extreme of the Dutch who look at it and say, this is their competitive advantage on a global 
uh, stage, and they think that they can provide these resources uh, to not just the rest of Europe or not the U.S., but to the Far East and anywhere in the world uh, to look at a future of growing in a, uh, in a better way. So, wow. uh, yeah, so the question becomes, what scale are you looking to do it at? What is your horizon for returning your investment? And what is the rationale or reason that you want to put money into investing in these type of programs? And uh, what we've even seen in the last five years is each one of those restrictions or friction points has greatly reduced uh, by the volume of these new innovations and technologies that are coming about. And we, uh, and surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, we're, we're benefiting to some extent from the legalization of marijuana, right? I mean, I've been reading, reading about some of this uh, uh, this indoor growing happening in Colorado and some of the concerns you brought up about energy uses and other things. I mean, some of this is being, uh, being tested and refined <laughs> with, the, with the advent of that kind of need for a controlled growing of, of marijuana. Is that, um, is that uh, true or is that, uh, what, is that the, a similar process that's going on? Absolutely. So, um, you know, just like anything else, uh, the economics plays a major role here. So um, if you have a cash crop of value of uh, salad greens, which is you know, a few bucks per pound uh, versus a few thousand dollars per pound of, of uh, cannabis, um, it gets more people interested in growing that product and doing it the right way and mm-hmm. aligning with where a consumer may want to go. Um, what we've seen within the marijuana growing industry is yes, it was kind of a prosumer home homeowner type model that really was the early to market adoption. Uh, we saw with scale now the medical needs and requirements, which is growing more uh, in a biopharma type environment with the, the suits and the closed environment and uh, really containing that to being uh, a laboratory type of approach, even when grown in soil. Um, but uh, the next evolution here with homeowner uses is making it a bit more like what we've seen in, in distilleries or breweries, um, where those approaches to growing things, uh, like the microbrew approach, for instance, would probably be a good analogy, uh, where when Sam Adams and Harpoon did it, it was huge infrastructure needed, the, the, the products, the materials, the, the tools required to brew your beer to create the mash uh, were just not prevalent and weren't available. So mm-hmm. you had to make your own, you had to prefab, you had to buy them from all over the world. Uh, as that market took off, uh, you now see uh, small breweries, uh, local hyperlocal breweries that are focused on sourcing best ingredients can prefab their own uh, distillery or, or brewery right in a small facility because uh, they've been able to add all the requirements and the feature sets and the tools needed to make a better beer uh, on a continuous basis for a, you know, a fraction of the cost of what it used to be right. uh, and a fraction of time that it required to actually build this framework. So if we start looking at that type of analogy of what can happen with medical marijuana and then home, uh, a consumer base or, or adult-use marijuana, um, Man, that that really would change the the ball game of of, uh, of what people can start to do for growing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're growing a plant in either a substrate of cocoa mesh and water or in soil. So if we can then parlay that innovation and technology into growing better tomatoes, into growing uh, salad greens, or start to look at the next evolution, which is orchard fruit or or strawberries or things that are resource intensive and very difficult and often come uh, from a couple thousand miles away uh, from other parts of the world, 
that really starts to be a game changer in what we can start doing for a consistent supply of highest quality produce uh, coming from controlled environment mm-hmm. growing. So all that part of it is um, is a bit like having maybe the best analogy, Russ, would be like when NASA came in and they, they start putting money early stage into concepts because they have the resources to do it, and it spawns new innovations, often places you'd never expect. Well, maybe that's a, a good a good perspective to look at it, what's going to happen with the future of indoor growing based off of some of these new evolved models that are in a high-value product line like cannabis. Mm-hmm. So uh, I wanted to quickly touch before we wrap up. Um, w- w- a place that you and I crossed paths a while back was a tour of an aquaculture facility up in Gloucester, Massachusetts. And you mentioned as we started talking that you focus on animal um, uh, food source, or that's you know, what the Eisenhower Fellowship was about. And I wondered if, if, if there's a quick summary of, of what might be happening with, with seafood or other types of uh, animal <laughs> uh, proteins being, being cultivated inside. Is there, is there any parallel, or is it a whole different kind of track and dynamic to, to get shrimp and fish and and you know who knows what to uh, to grow uh, in a controlled environment. Yeah. So yeah. Thanks. Um, fisheries is probably a good thing to speak to. The terrestrial model or food animals, meat animals, uh, would be a much longer conversation. I'll just say what we're trying to do in that side of things with, with um, beef and swine and poultry is actually get them out of buildings and put them into pasture. Mm-hmm. Uh, that creates a better living environment for the animal, a healthier animal, and hence. healthier meat that you're consuming. So, you know, we're bioaccumulators here. So what we eat is based off of what they eat. So getting animals out in their natural living environment actually is a much, it's a huge benefit to us and our environment. Mm -hmm. But but fishing is a very interesting model. So fisheries, you know, we've had the luxury uh, to think linear in fisheries all over the globe up until the last decade. Uh, But now we've got about 3 billion people across the world that are reliant on sea proteins as their major caloric intake for the day. Uh, that's a problem in the fact that over 95% of our global fisheries are stressed or overstressed, which means we're, we're fishing them to exhaustion. Mm-hmm. Uh, much of the technologies that have spawned within fisheries have allowed us to earmark or find those schools of fish, and then we basically fish down the commons. We, we find a higher trophic level species, we, we fish it out, and then we move down to the next. And mm-hmm. uh, that's happening now. We're, we're familiar with it in the Northeast and often in the States. Uh, with our fisheries in cod or whale or, or even uh, what's happened even with tuna or lobster. And, uh, and the things, things are changing there, too. We have acidification and warming waters. So how do we deal with this, these issues that, um, that uh, are often what we feel out of our control? So one of the best models that we're starting to look at is, is aquaculture or farming the ocean. And uh, you can look at it from a couple of different perspective, perspectives. There are ranchers that will ranch salmon up and down through their natural procedures in, in open waterways. Uh, there are shellfish aquaculturemen, which are uh, looking at the genetics and raising out spat and, and raising these animals in a closed environment to reduce uh, dead loss of animals, of, of, of bivalves and clams and oysters, uh, so that when they do plant these in the open waters or in the bays, that they have a better success rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've also done an excellent job of making these a highly desirable product. It's a bit like uh, what we've done with wine. You have terroir in shellfish. Uh, you go five miles up and down the coast to anywhere in the northeast, 
and you'll see that each uh, oyster has a, has a different flavor profile, different salinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a very positive thing. It's like terroir and wine. We have meroir and, and shellfish. Mm-hmm. But I think your question about looking at what the future of food animals within uh, growing inside uh, comes down to fin fisheries. Um, we have uh, fin fisheries that are exhausting to the point where um, we need to be better shepherds and stewards of this natural resource that we keep taking from. So one of the approaches, obviously, is aquaculture. Aquaculture is at a point now where we're, we're actually uh, raising over 50% of the total protein source requirements uh, in controlled environment growing in, in uh, uh, aquaculture facilities for finfish. But the problem that we're doing it in most cases, the equivalence would be raising them in uh, what we what we think of, of of CAFOs or feedlot environments for beef cattle. Yeah. Uh, but the problem with fish is that they're three-dimensional versions of that. So not only do you have them stacked shoulder to shoulder, but you then have them on top of one another. So uh, much of the concern within that approach is uh, you have disgustingly dirty and, and, and virile water that is um, teeming with, uh, with bacteria. So they stuff uh, much of these shortcuts approach in these feedlot environments for fish uh, with antibiotics. Uh, there's the poor genetics in these animals. Uh, it's a low-cost provider version of this food, and, mm. and the same as we spoke of just a moment ago of, of these food animals and, and, and meat and pig is uh, we're bioaccumulators. So what that, fin, what that fin fish is eating is what we're eating. Right. And so if they live in a bad environment, that, that's going to affect and have a negative uh, or detrimental effect on us. So uh, there is a unique opportunity to start taking what's happened within aquaculture and do it as a biomimetic approach. And what we saw up in Gloucester a few years ago uh, was started by Jan Schlippen, the famous environmental lawyer, uh, right on the Gloucester Fish Pier. And it created an approach that was supposed to replicate the way that the ocean waters work. So you had mollusks that were cleaning the water. You had uh, you had sea life and sea greens that were working to uh, to balance the water pH. Uh, he used it as an approach of cycling the water through things to, through this natural process to clean it uh, and then grow out. He was growing out uh, fingerling uh, trout. So mm-hmm. often there's a, a trout that will go from freshwater to seawater. And genetically, it enhances their feed efficiency uh, just by moving from this freshwater to to, uh, to seawater. So he was trying to capture that mode of having uh, a very efficient animal put in a very clean environment in a controlled environment. Uh, and he was way before his time. But that is, without a doubt, the future of aquaculture. Mm-hmm. And what's exciting about that is if we can then take some of the advancements around the idea of know your farmer, know your food, uh, people's interest in the provenance of food, it creates, and, and using a data layer of technology to prove traceability and transparency, it actually creates a pretty unique opportunity to decommoditize or to differentiate the approaches of aquaculture so right. that yeah. aquaculture done in a clean environment with the right feed, uh, well-treated animals uh, could be a unique identifier to pull it out of the commodity stream of that produces 50% of fish uh, of that, you know, Southeast Asian tilapia, where you have no idea where it came from, <laughs> to actually trying to produce cod indoors by New England fishermen. Yeah, well, that's fascinating. I was going to. So, say, if just... that's you know, that's an exciting evolution that we start looking at things differently uh, on something that's as large scale as fisheries. Uh, that's produced as as an intellectual property that can scale globally from our region. Wow. 
Uh, yeah, I was just going to bring up the tilapia. Uh, I've read an article about that that scared the heck out of me, and it sounds exactly what, like what you're describing. It was just a, a real mess of a situation, uh, and that you don't know that as a consumer buying that at the at, at the fish counter. You know, you have no idea that one is treated one way and one is another. Um, so I think you're right that the, the getting more transparency or more more visibility into that would be very helpful to a consumer. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right, Rusty. And what's exciting about what we've got going on in in the U.S. is um, obviously our, our regulatory forces in controlling our food system, environmental impact, are, are will lag behind. But our free markets and our consumers, uh, when they buy into something like an idea of a precautionary principle, something that they believe is going to affect them or their family, um, we we do we motivate, we get things done, and we have the ability to rally the troops and. Um, I think we start to look at some of those uh, tactics and techniques we've used in other food categories like beer, wine, sweet, savories, where the consumer has become engaged, where they care about the terroir or the region that came from that. It's those fair trade practice, that the roasting practices is different than in this region or another. Those are all attributes of teaching and educating a consumer to become more engaged, to become yeah. aficionados. Yeah. Uh, the protein sources that we have, or even the, you know, the center plate or or the salad plate, uh, seems to be that next evolution, and that's what's very exciting. And while we get enthusiastic about the potential of this space, is that uh, we're really on the tip of the iceberg here of where the consumer will drive change in our food systems. And as many people, much smarter than I, have always said, that the way we decide to feed ourselves will effectively rule the way that the the earth will. Uh, will survive yeah. uh, and that, that's it's it's very true in the fact that we have such with seven billion people and estimated to be nine billion by 2050 uh, how we decide to deal with our regenerative natural resources and and how we decide to feed ourselves will ultimately determine uh, the success and stability of, of the planet wow well that uh, I, I love that that quick summary and also every time I speak speak with you i feel a little bit more optimistic that there is a um, there's a you know these innovations are leading us to a better place we be albeit slowly and with some some corrections and testing needed but uh, uh i really appreciate you spending time with me today and it's great to learn more about these um all these uh, unique things my pleasure Rusty. it was always great talking to you good well thank you again